0: Hey, this is PJ Souls, and you are totally listening to Nightmare Junkhead. Woo! Keep listening.
1: Weaving in and out of your consciousness like a bad dream you can't wake from, this is the Nightmare Junkhead Podcast, a horror podcast that always prefers practical to the click of a mouse. My name is Greg D. And I'm Genius McGee. And on today's episode, we're looking back at some of our favorite special effects gags and talking to the author of the recently released Monster Squad, celebrating the artist behind cinema's most memorable creatures. But before we get in that gang, let me remind you we were part of the phenomenally frightening Phantom Podcast Network. Phantom. And you can find all of our past episodes, along with a host of other horrific horror podcasts, at downrightcreepy.com. Or if you're like me and you like to listen to us on the go, simply search for Nightmare Junkhead in your iTunes or SoundCloud app. Hit subscribe, and when we drop our latest episode, we'll download directly to your listening device of choice. I'll open your effects hole. And so one of the advantages, one of the things that I love about podcasting and the fact that we've been doing this now for 100 episodes in yeah. is not only is it a chance for us to you know get together weekly and talk horror, mm-hmm. but also, and especially as a self-professed introvert, someone that doesn't get out and mix it amongst the people, I've had a chance, we've had a chance to actually meet through the advent and miracle of social media right. and podcasting some fantastic, fantastic people. Yeah, we have. And today is no different. And obviously, um, we we're all about literacy here on the podcast. Yeah, we, it's important to read good. Indeed, indeed. We want we don't want to. We want a nation of you know literate horror fans out right. there. And tonight's guest, you guys, she is the managing editor for DailyDead.com. dot uh, She is the co host, one of the co hosts of the Corpse Club, and she is the author of the aforementioned Monster Squad. Please welcome for the first time here on Nightmare Junkhead Heather Wixon.
0: Wow, you guys! I'm gonna br- I'm gonna hire you <laughs> all the time. All like the t- this is, that's like the nicest intro I've ever gotten in my life. I'm gonna record that and just play that before ever, I ever enter any room in the future from now on. Uh, <laughs> wow, I'm I'm so flattered. Thank you so much for having me.
2: You need to get somebody to with like lights and strobe lights. Give it up for Heather Redson, and then you come out like with like hardcore rap music and like fucking like a boxer.
0: Well, being from Chicago, I feel like I maybe should come into like the old Bulls theme that they used to play, because you can't. That yeah,
1: one? Yes. Exactly.
0: You can't escape that song, but it's uh, do like some a smoke machine and some light effects. I, I can dig it.
1: <laughs> We'd be happy to be your hype men anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we get into all the good stuff, uh, tell our listeners out there, where can they find you out on the interwebs? Feel free to plug your social media, whatever they can do to reach you. Oh,
0: absolutely. Um, So because I absolutely hate Facebook, you will not find me there, (laughs) but I do all of my social media-ing, I guess if that's a thing, uh, over on Twitter, which is, as you mentioned, social media is like like really cool because you can connect with a lot of folks that maybe you wouldn't normally. Um, So Twitter has kind of been the best, sometimes worst thing ever because... With the good, there's the bad. Um, but you can find me over there at the Horror Chick, and for anybody who's interested in the book that we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, you can follow the uh, the book at Monster Squad FX. Uh, the letter F, the letter X. Um, but that's pretty much where I'm at these days. I don't Instagram. and I leave that to the kids, and you know, I uh, I don't do Tumblr because you know that just sounds like too much work. So.
1: I can't blame you. It's all the stuff that makes me sound like an old man where I'm telling all these youngsters to get off my lawn. And I get out of breath after I tweet. Yes. (laughs) So no tumbling for Tumblr for me. Well, so um, before we get into the the, the book itself, uh, we always ask people that are coming on the uh, the show for the first time, you know, what was your initial entryway into horror?
0: So... I grew up in a much different time, like, or, you know, in the <laughs> 80s, and which meant when you were growing up with a single mom, like, that she would just take you to every movie that she went to. And I distinctly remember my very first horror movie uh, was American Werewolf in London,
3: <laughs>
0: or at least the, the first one I can actually remember. Yeah. Um, but I do remember seeing the movie theater scene is the one thing that always has stuck with me, like, ever since... That age, um, where I just vividly remember watching him being in a movie theater and we were in a movie theater. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, how can that be? Um, And we also had my mom's best friend with us and she was really like a scaredy cat when it came to movies. So I think it was the scene in um, the 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 movie theater like when like everybody gets attacked and shows up bloody she got freaked out she's like oh i think heather's really really scared yeah. so we're going to take her out um but yeah and i just i because my mom was so into horror movies like i just kind of absorbed them through her and then my very best friend in the world that i still talk to to this day um, she lived two houses away from me, and I would always be at her house. And her parents were really into sci-fi, so it wasn't unusual for us to be watching The Thing or episodes of Star Trek. And like, you know, at the age of five,
3: nice. um,
0: which is pretty intense. Um, <laughs> you, you don't get how great it is until you're like thirty years later. But like at five, all I knew is I never wanted to be around a dog ever again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I was not trusting it. So, but yeah, so I just kind of grew up obsessed with them, Um, and it was kind of fun because a lot of kids that I grew up around were sort of in, you know, everybody was sort of into like the same things, Transformers, that kind of stuff, Um, but I was always like the kid who would come over to like the sleepovers and everything, and I'd be the one who'd bring the horror movie, and my favorite was always to bring Sleepaway Camp. (laughs) Because... I like to mess people up a bit, Um, you know, and I do remember there was one incident where I actually got a talking to, and (laughs) my friend Candace's dad called my mom and said I brought an inappropriate movie, (laughs) Um, but yeah, that was always, like, my litmus test to see who, like, who could handle hanging out with, like, me, like, and watching movies, and I'm like, if you can do Sleepaway Camp, then you're a good egg.
2: When when you got in trouble for bringing sleepaway camp was did somebody's mom call you up and be like oh we can't have that movie at all? Why just the other day I was saying that movie is inappropriate. Now don't you
1: think? Isn't that nice of me? So. If
0: you said it in that voice, I'd be so I'd be like yeah. I, I completely agree
1: with you. <laughs> did you pack some chips for us? Of course you did. Of course you did. You I kinda... had a little
0: string to my finger.
1: <laughs> so I don't forget. In fact, here it is. <laughs> you talked a little bit about there. You were basically that genre educator for a lot of people, it sounds like. She was the cool one. You you were. I. We've talked about it before. I once... Um, I basically had, I was in charge of selecting a movie. Like you said, it was a different time back then, and if you were responsible for bringing a movie, there was so much pressure on you mm-hmm. because... It better we, be fucking good. We we didn't stream anything right. back then. It was that or nothing. And so I brought in uh, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, and I never got invited back to that house, unfortunately. <laughs> ah. So. I can understand your pain with that there. It's, yeah, that uh, was
0: that would be an intense movie. In fact, I think I remember seeing that movie. I didn't get that movie at all. I think until at least I was in my twenties. And I was like, Oh, this is what he was doing. I just thought it was a weird thing about monsters and mirrors. Like, you know, that's that's a that's a pretty heavy one to uh
2: wait, it's not about monsters
1: and mirrors? Oh, come on now. That's uh <laughs> hey, I don't think anybody gets
2: that movie until they're at least in their twenties. I don't think John Carpenter gets that movie. Come on now. (laughs)
1: Hey,
2: I guess I was going to make a movie then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so that being said, were you um, raised around like the video store? Was the video store kind of an important place for you?
0: Oh, yeah. Especially because our video store, um, because I grew up, I grew up basically like a, a poor kid in a trailer park. So we didn't use the laundromat like in our park. So we would go. We had like this thing where like we would go do our laundry, go do our grocery shopping down the street, and then you know, and then that would be our night. So while the laundry was going, right next to the laundromat was our video store, and I would spend a lot of time there. And one of the big things that really kind of was like my education in horror, and it sounds very strange, um, <laughs> but I was super obsessed with Tyranny Isles*. Like I love a good monster, yes! I love a good clip movie. Uh, Donald Pleasance, Nancy Allen. For anybody who hasn't seen it, it's fun. Um, It's a very surface look at horror, obviously, because it was made in 84, but I loved the cover art so much because it had all the titles of all the movies in it. So every time I would go to the movie, like to the video store, I would fixate on one title in particular, and then I would spend like 20 minutes trying to find that movie, you know, because that was sort of like how... I knew I was seeing as much as I could without just, you know, keep going back to the the movies that I loved, which, you know, I have a tendency to do now these days. Um, so that was kind of like I would spend hours there. Um, and it was just, you know, that was a huge part of my childhood. And then also my mom... Um, for a few years when I was in elementary school, she was dating this guy who worked for one of the distribution centers for uh, WIA, which was Warner Electra Atlantic Records back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also distributed movies and stuff like that. So he worked at the warehouse. So he would bring home stuff all the time and talk to me about like – like I, when I was a kid, if you needed to know about Warner Brothers, like I knew that shit. Like I was on
3: it. <laughs>
0: Um, but we would also get the really cool Warner Brothers catalogs, which I was the only person like of our neighborhood who got it. Oh, wow. So I was mostly the uncool kid until the Warner Brothers catalog came. And then that I was the cool kid. Um, but yeah, so it was just kind of like sort of those organic things. Like, I mean, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, in a quote unquote big city or anything like that. Like I wasn't in Los Angeles where you're sort of, I think if you grow up out here, you know, you're kind of. You're you're sort of already in it in a way. Like I think they basically hand you like a clapboard when you come out of the womb. Um, they're like, here you go, kid, go go direct a movie now. and
2: action. <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, so for me, it was just all about finding things, um, and I was just really into. You know, I wasn't super into, like, watching Faces of Death and stuff. I think because also in high school, like, I got a really good appreciation for, like, film as, like, a medium mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just entertainment. I started to really, like, search for things that I wouldn't normally do. And it was kind of cool because also my, my my film teacher actually even showed us a few horror movies. And that's when I realized, like, for all the times where people are like, ah, oh, you watch that crap? Like, no, there's a real value to this, mm-hmm. this you know, genre.
2: Okay, so two things. One is a question about video stores for you. Another one, I'm going to just kind of pile some, like, laud on you. Because, one, um, one question that we ask in the thing, we talk always talk about the video cover arts. Was there any movie that when you were younger, you're like, no, nope, fuck that. That movie, I do not want to see that. It looks scary. And then finally, you're like, this movie is awesome. And And... Another question is, I have to say, when you said Terrell in the Isles, um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I, it's a well-known fact I, I don't listen to any podcasts, but I did listen to one of your episodes and you are talking about uh, anthologies, and you, one of your picks was Waxworks, and you were defending how Waxworks is an anthology, and I never listen to podcasts, but I find myself, yes, this chick is fucking awesome, right, and then when you <laughs> said, and then when you said, tear in the Aisles, i like, this is fantastic, so yeah, you you're aces in my book right now. <laughs> Excellent, yeah, I
0: actually have a Tara in the Isles poster in my oh. living room, because, I just love it. It's, it's it's a fake, like, you know, it's a reprint. But I actually just scored a one sheet, like, I think this last summer it was. So I actually have the original one sheet now for Tyranny Isles. And it's, like, one of the greatest things.
2: So, so. cool. So <laughs> fucking cool. That is such a good movie. Just, like, it was, like, horror and light. It was a lot of people's, like, clip show horror. I loved it.
0: And it's also the best way to see Donald Pleasant say werewolves. Like, he has the best <laughs> way to say werewolves ever.
2: I uh, howled six yeah. times.
0: Yeah. Or my favorite is, like, when they're showing clips from Halloween, and he's like, get him! And he's yelling at, Lord, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis to stab Michael. And I'm like, man, he looks like he's having a lot of fun. So that's why I love it. Uh, and also, like, just weird, terrible people in a movie theater. Like, we think we have a bad now. Like, oh. there's, there's some unsavory characters in, in, in that theater. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you mentioned, oh, video store. So artwork. Um, I don't know if there necessarily was because I just kind of watched everything, but there were two movies growing up that were absolute no-nos in our house because my mom was like, no, like I'll pretty much let you watch anything, but you can't watch Texas Chainsaw and you cannot watch The Exorcist. Like, Uh because... She's one of these weird, like, she thinks, because she, she has a very religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I think she feels like there's, like, some weird evil power. And, and it just freaked her out so badly. Um, and, in fact, like, years ago, I actually recommended, like, oh, you should watch Paranormal Activity. And she called me, and she's like, why would you let me watch that? <laughs> and she was like, do you know what that movie does? And, like, and I was like, mom, it's a movie. I'm like, I know the direct. Like, it's it, just people. <laughs> And she was like, oh, I just, as soon as I was done, I put it in my purse and I put the purse in the closet. She's like, I can't even believe you'd have me rent that. Um, <laughs> but those were like my two no-no movies. Um, and then at eight, we snuck it at my babysitter's house. And I remember being absolutely terrified and then re-watching in high school being like, why was I so scared? Like, there's actually like no real gore. Like, it's, it's a visceral experience because I think it's so jarring in a lot of different ways. Um, so Texas Chainsaw was like a weird thing where I was like, it was like The Devil, and then I saw it as a kid, and I was like, holy crap. And then as a teenager, I was like, oh, this movie. Uh, And then, of course, obviously, I got my head out of my ass and became a real grown-up and could appreciate movies the right way. And then I was like, oh, I get it, Mr. Hooper. I get it. Um, And The Exorcist was the same way. I actually didn't even see The Exorcist until I was in college. Wow. Which was the worst way to see it because (laughs) I don't know if you remember, but college kids are kind of the worst. They're like just a heightened like more entitled version of high schoolers and so it's halloween night and we're sitting in this big theater watching the exorcist and all people did the whole time was yell and laugh and throw things and it was awful and i was just like oh this is the like i was like oh this is the stupidest thing ever and of course then like Two years later I watched it normally, like at home and I was like, oh dear God, that was insanely good. What was I thinking? So um but yeah, like artwork never bothered me. Like we always joke in my house because like one of um one of my favorite movies is like April Fool's Day. And for me, that box that box art like w- uh-huh. immediately hooked me as a kid. And for my other half, he was like, Yeah, he's like when I saw that movie and I saw her hair was in a no- like shape of a noose, he was yeah. like, Oh, I couldn't watch that. And it's like the tamest <laughs> movie ever. There's actually like you know, no death. Like there, it's like the, the the lightest slasher movie mm-hmm. you'll ever see in your life. Um, but it's it just shows you the power of really good box art.
2: Just bait and switchery, <laughs> and that sucks that your exorcist turned into the Reagan horror picture show. <laughs> and
0: uh... <laughs> oh god, just—I was like, I I know right now that collectively, like the five hundred kids that were like, we're all sitting in this room. We're all assholes. We're uh... all the worst people ever. Like we can't appreciate anything that's good, but boy, it was, that was a terrible scream. It was basically like when you see the stat, when the, they go to see stab yeah. in Scream 2, <laughs> it's killer, it, was, it was literally like that.
2: Yeah. Um, and it was funny how you said how your mom didn't let you watch like exorcist and stuff. Cause my mom used to say the same thing. She goes, you watch movies about the devil. The devil's watching you. And he can possess you through those movies. And I was like little. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and so I, I got Aunt Damien. And I got Exorcist. And I'm like, I'm going to give me some power. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: you tempt fate every time, I, I, man. I, I every do, time.
2: I do. I do. I'm a, fat, a fate tempter.
1: Well, you mentioned that whole audience interaction. And the audience, the crowd can really make or break a screening like that. Yes. And it's so unfortunate. Because I think many of us, we kind of hold these films sacred in many ways. And when we go and experience that, and it's that whole communal activity, when we see other people disrespecting it, I mean, not only yeah. does it take you out of the film, but it just puts you in a sour mood. So that's beyond a bummer. I'm I'm glad you were able to at least. Now, have you seen it since with a good crowd?
0: Yes, actually, they they screened it a few years ago at Flashback Weekend, uh, which is a convention out in Chicago, and that was. A really great crowd. Everybody was super into it, and it was actually really fantastic sound, really good print. So that was like the ultimate way to see it.
1: Nice, nice. So by you've been basically you were avoiding Satan, uh, oiling up to the the chainsaw there, and then so what eventually got you to combine um, horror, and then in this case, in terms of kind of writing, when did that happen?
0: It sort of I I kind of to. To sort of back up before that, like, I always loved writing growing up. Um, Like, I was kind of the kid who was always off, like, on summer break. Like, everybody would be outside playing, and I'd be scribbling something here or there. Um, You know, so I was always writing. Like, I don't know if you guys ever had, like, they had, like, young authors competitions Mm -hmm. in our elementary school. And, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I actually would usually win. Each year for my gr- my respective grade. And in fact, um, second grade, I actually took, uh, the district honors for grades one through five, Damn. which was amazing. Yeah. Look, like... look, look where it led me kids <laughs> making them big bucks. Um, But, yeah, so I was always really into writing, like, um, in fact, in, like, elementary school, I was part of, like, starting our first newspaper, Um, and then I just kind of kept doing it, like, in terms of doing newspaper stuff. I think I realized, like, I liked creative writing, but I was more interested – Like I was always really into like news and maybe it was because I was always like I grew up watching like 2020 and like Unsolved Mysteries. Like (laughs) I like Well, I like telling other people's stories. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I just found that more interesting than trying to come up with my own. Um, and so I always kind of gravitated towards that. And then in high school, like I had a a really great English teacher who I had for all four years and she saw something in me. I'm not sure what, but she was, you know, and really got me involved heavily with the newspaper. And, uh, I was one of the youngest co-editors that they'd ever had for their staff. And I actually got to write for the Daily Herald when I was in high school, which was kind of cool. Um, and then I just sort of gave it up because it wasn't quote unquote the smart thing to do because You know, to go and try to get a job as, like, in a regular newspaper setting and writing about, like, normal, like, city council stuff. Like, that didn't interest me. But, you know, this is because I'm old. This is back in the day when it really (laughs) wasn't, you know, an online horror journalism Mm -hmm. thing. Like, you know, I just went and just got a regular job and kind of forgot about it. Um, You know, and just sort of focused on all the things that you're supposed to do in your 20s. Like, you know, get married, buy a house, and do all that stuff. And it was about 10 years ago like i just realized like man like so much of my life has been about what everybody else has expected of me i haven't really done anything for myself and this isn't a slam against my ex or anything um but he was always like really into like music and stuff like that so i'd always been really sort of the backbone of like when he was in a band like you know sending out stuff and you know supporting him and i never really took time to figure out what exactly i wanted like i just knew i didn't want to work in accounting and that's like me you know that's what becomes my the definition of who i am because i knew i wasn't that person um and i was sitting at flashback weekend in 2007 um and it was the year that adam green was there doing promotion for hatchet and he shared the story about d snyder and talking a little bit about, like, you know, how he wrote to Dean when he was really young and Dean was like, oh, man, follow your dreams. And then eventually, like, you know, flash forward to him being an adult and Dee Snyder walking him on the red carpet at the premiere of his first movie, um, you know, and just, you know, and he talked about, like, you know, you if you have something you're passionate about, you know, don't ever give up on that because you just never know. And so it was weird because I knew at the time this was happening, like in the back of my mind, like my marriage was slowly starting to fall apart. I'm sitting next to the guy who I'm just like, okay, I don't see me sitting next to him here in the future. What do I want out of my life? And I knew I loved horror. I n- always knew in the back of my mind I wanted to be writing. And I would, had been started doing like some local writing for like local newspapers. But again, you can only get so excited about like, oh, we're getting a new, uh, you know, sidewalk in, you know, <laughs> by the park. Um, and I just didn't know how to kind of bring it together. And, you know, and that's when I started like kind of looking into sites like Bloody Disgusting and Shock to You Drop and Dread Central and Fear Net and all that. Uh, and I realized that this was a thing that people did. And so I was on Craigslist one day um, and I saw a posting for this brand new website and it was called HairTube. It's, it's, I think it's still there, but I am, you know, we haven't posted on it like six years. Um, And he was, you know, it was just my boss, Fabian, was looking for somebody to do reviews and I was like, okay, let's see, why not? And he took a chance on me. Like I had, you know, I had some clippings from like some music sites I'd been doing like little goofy posts for but nothing that would say that I would be qualified to write about horror so we just kind of you know I did a few inter- reviews and we just kind of saw if it was going to work and it did and so he was the guy who gave me my first break and I was there for about three years um total you know I had a little bit of an overlap because then um it was Sundance 2009 um and I had been covering um The movie Grace extensively, uh, just because I'd sort of been connected to it through Adam Green. He and I had become friends since I watched that talk and I told him, you know, thanks for saying all that stuff because it, you know, inspired me to do this. And because I'd been so heavily involved with Grace, I basically... Sold literally everything off that I could. I used to do really crappy jewelry parties for like ladies, you know, boardhousewives, and they're like, "Oh, let's buy some jewelry." Um, and I had all this stuff that like the women at my office, because I had a day job back in Chicago, and they were like, "Oh, you know," I'm like, "Here, everything's twenty bucks," and that basically helped pay for my flight, my tickets um, to different movies, my hotel, and my car rental so I could go cover Sundance because it wasn't like I had a boss who could pay for it or anything like that, you know. Um, So I just kind of was out there and did it. And because of that, um, that's when I got called to start working at Dread Central, um, which was crazy to me because, you know, that was at the time one of like the big three, you Mm. know, when you talk about the big three, you know, of the 2000s it was bloody shock and dread so i was like holy crap this is insane um and then as i started working for them literally my entire life in chicago was completely just falling apart like um my was just about to get you know my divorce was about to be finalized i had two houses that were basically going into foreclosure because of the whole housing crash um I got fired from my job, which was the first time I'd ever been fired from a job in my entire life. Um, so that was crazy because I'm like, I, it was more of an ego thing, I think, than anything. But the cool thing is, is in retrospect, my boss that I had there, like, he knew I wrote. Mm-hmm. And he knew i just done Sundance and stuff. And he knew, like, because I used to come out to L.A. and visit and, like, cover Scream Fest and stuff. And he, I think he knew I would never quit. Yeah. And I think he knew that this was his way of being like, you should really go do this. Um, and so at first I was like, oh my God, like what am I going to do? And I was right. like, well, you're just going to figure it out. So I had already had a trip planned to, to California for my birthday. So I was like, all right, well, whatever. And as I was getting on a plane, I actually uh, ended up getting called for a job interview oh. out here in Cerritos. And I was like, oh, okay. So like I basically like, You know, flew into California on a Thursday night and Friday morning. I had a job interview, and by next Wednesday, I had a job.
2: That's (laughs) awesome.
0: Yeah. And I basically went back home and in five days packed up my life, dropped my, you know, horde of cats off at my mom's (laughs) for a month. And I just kind of ripped the band aid and moved out here, and it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Um, but it was awesome. Like I, I still can't believe I live here, uh, especially when everybody else I know in the country right now is freezing. <laughs> and it was like seventy four degrees here today.
2: Rub it in. <laughs> I know. And
0: I was like, I was like, oh, I don't think I need a sweater when I go to the park today. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, that ch- the December chill is in the air. So I, it's just one of these things where I, I. I I don't know how to say, like, how it all, like, happened. Like, it happened. Yeah. But I just feel like I got really lucky a lot. Um, and then because of those breaks, like, I just realized I had to keep pushing and keep pushing. Um, and, you know, and it's one thing, like, I see a lot of folks, like, these days, like, they talk about, oh, you know, I, you know don't work for exposure or anything like that. But I actually think when you're first starting out, mm-hmm. you almost have to. Because, yeah. I mean, I think I worked for three years in this industry before I ever got paid. Um, which is probably a little longer than I would recommend for most people. <laughs> um, in, in retrospect, I won't point any fingers at certain ex bosses or anything. Right. But um, but it, at the beginning, like, who was I to ask? I mean, yeah, if you do work, you should get paid. But for me, it really worked out because I just was able to really start finding my voice, figuring out who I wanted to be in this little crazy microcosm of horror. And figure out the kind of work that I wanted to put out there. And th- for me, it's like sort of being able to do that was invaluable. Like, I almost am glad that Twitter wasn't necessarily as a thing then. And neither was really Facebook at the time. Like, it was Facebook was, I think Facebook when I joined was like still you had to be invited.
3: Huh, so, yeah, yeah
0: back, in the, back in the good old days. Um, so, I'm almost glad that I did it then because I didn't have to I didn't have that social media pressure I could just sort of find it and there was if I screw up a little bit it's not a you know it's not going to ruin me Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah it was just trying to figure out new ways to do things to find you know and for me it's always been also about championing like independent stuff because at the time that I was coming up in the industry most sites really weren't Um, so that was always a big thing like one I was super into special effects and the other was independent movies because I just felt like those two realms were so crucial to the, mm-hmm. the genre that we love, but we weren't really hearing those stories.
2: Yeah, you, you have to have starting somewhere before you become a master of horror. And like you said, helping promote the, those small independent ones, that's what it's all about. Plus, some of those small independent ones are by far and away superior horror movies.
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, although I would say that, like the last two years, we've really seen a little bit of the evening of, like, the playing field in terms of studio versus indie mm-hmm. horror. Yeah, yeah. Like, when, when I would do my recaps, like, maybe five years ago, like, most of my picks would always be independent stuff. And, like, the last couple of years, like, I'm like, wow, there's a pretty good mix of both. And I think that's great. Like, mm-hmm. you know, not to, you know, bag on the, the studio system, but it works very differently, and you get a very different product, I think. But when, you know, in certain cases, when you really like let the creator do what they want to do. Like, you know, with get out or it, Mm -hmm. you know, it shows sort of like loosen those reins a bit. What amazing movies you can get, you know, out of people. If you just don't, you know, micromanage them to death.
2: And now that get out and it are making so much money and getting so much like accolades, maybe the studios will take a notice and be like, yeah, maybe we should let the horror people do their horror thing. You know? Well,
0: yeah, and I think that's the great thing. Like, if you look at like, say, you what Universal does with Blumhouse.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, yes. they were
0: smart to realize Blumhouse. You know, and and the thing is, like, I I'm actually a huge fan of Blumhouse. I've gotten crap over the years for a few maybe questionable movies that most people didn't like, but I still actually really enjoyed. Like, I you know I had to say like I like Lazarus Effect. I don't know. I like weird crazy science movies, <laughs> and it was something really different at the time. You know, it wasn't ghosts in a house. It was like okay, cool. Yeah. You so I've always really loved the model that they do because they know that, you know, they can put $2 million into a movie and they're going to make their budget back like 200 times fold almost. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like they know they're in a good place. And so therefore, Universal leaves Blumhouse alone. And Blumhouse, because of the way they work with directors, they leave their, you know, they give them notes, but they never say like, you have to do these. Right. This is just what we think would really help you. And it works out beautifully. And I think that's why we've seen so many really interesting movies kind of come out of that relationship. Like, I, I'm a big fan of Happy Death Day. Like, again, I wanted something, you know, for me, it sort of feels like this generation's April Fool's Day in a way. Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know the whole the fact that it was a was a PG the rating itself initially turned a lot of people off. But you can get some truly effective and scary films with even a PG rating. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you talked about Heather growing up in that time, and you know back in the day, a PG '80s rating
2: (laughs) didn't necessarily mean it was Disney. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and so PG today obviously is a little bit different. But I think it's interesting. Number one, it's so commendable the fact that you chose to take that risk Mm -hmm. to put yourself out there and to succeed the way you have I mean it is very much an inspirational story but the fact that you've been able to accrue all these interesting stories the fact that you're friends now with Adam Green how much of that is surreal to you at this point kind of looking back just where the writing has taken you
0: like I always say um, and it's one of my like sort of my favorite things um, to to ask folks like when I'm especially when I'm doing the book interviews is like what would that kid who grew up like loving monsters you know think about where your life has gone from there Um, and I always think about like if I had a time machine and I could go back and like tell myself like guess what like (laughs) when you grow up these are the things that are going to happen. And I've been so ridiculously blessed in my life. Like I really have. And I don't mean like blessed in a religious way or anything <laughs> like that. But I just mean like I just look at the things that I've been able to do and the people that I've been able to become, you know, friendly with and, you know, talk to, you know, in, in an environment that wouldn't necessarily be expected, you know, from my profession. Like, you know, and again, I don't want to speak I'm like, oh, I'm going to be, st- I'm gonna, you know, watch out, everybody. I'm dropping some names. But like in 2011, I got invited to go interview John Carpenter at his production house. Like, and this was a time <laughs> when, when Carpenter really wasn't doing a lot of interviews. Yeah. And I was fucking terrified. <laughs> I was shaking so hard on my way over there. Like, it looked like I was having a seizure. I was in the car and my hands were just going and going and going and, you know, thank God, like, it, you know, in my relationship, like my boyfriend, he d- shoots video and edits and stuff like that. So most of these things, like, he'll come with me, which is amazing because then I don't have to drive myself, like, and freak <laughs> out all by myself. So, you know, and I seriously, like, I stood in front of that house for five minutes before I could even muster the courage up to walk up to the door. Because it was like, oh my god, I'm gonna go do this, and it's, it's like the coolest house ever. Like he had a, I think, Escape from New York board game, like this really amazing Starman poster, Whoa. and he was the coolest dude. Like he was, so, like he was asking me questions. I was like, um, do, do you realize who you are and what? <laughs> <Like, laughs> Like, and that was when I, like, learned that he was, like, into gaming and stuff like that. Because, you know, he was talking about, like, you know, he was playing something at the time. He's like, oh, you guys play that? And, and
1: like, me, and then right?
0: after, yeah, and then, like, after the interview, he's like, here, come in here. And we were in the, he, he walked into his office and, like, and I think this was at the point where he was considering directing, I think, Bone Tomahawk what, what? Um, before S. Craig Zoller, Z- I think.
3: I was didn't realize did, he was, was going to do
2: Bone Tomahawk.
0: I think that was the move because he was talking about this really great sort of cannibal western. And I'm pretty sure from what I remember of the conversation, it all lines up time wise. So wow. I'm pretty sure that was one that he was considering at the time. And I don't I don't know what happened there. So, I mean, don't quote me as gospel, but oh, sure. I feel like that right, was right. a fact.
2: That's got um, Kurt Russell in it. So it makes sense. Uh, did John please tell me John Carpenter's house in the garden there was a statue, like a garden statuary of buck flowers as a fountain
0: <laughs> well this was just his production house so okay. <laughs> I, I didn't I, I don't know about his regular house I didn't see a garden though so but it was really cool because like they had the big cross from vampires was there and I was just like it was one of those things like we're standing in the living room and I'm just like okay don't freak out don't freak out and nobody was standing in there with us and I'm like quickly I took my phone out and I was like picture picture picture
3: picture.
0: nobody ever sees these but they're just for me so every once in a while I'm like oh my god I totally saw that like it was just it was the craziest thing like I would have never in a million years believed that like over the years I've gotten to know Tom Holland and like Fright Night's one of like my all time favorites Mm -hmm. and I, I I I I remember finding it was actually on Father's Day, which was sort of funny. I was going through a bunch of like old reports and stuff because my mom saved everything, and I got in trouble in second grade because at the end of the year you're supposed to do like you draw a picture of like your favorite book, your favorite TV show, and your favorite movie. (laughs) And for favorite movie, I draw I drew Fright Night and so my mom got a call like you know do you feel like this is appropriate but i found it and i remember sending him a picture and he was like wow he's like that's a really great father's day gift and that to me like really warmed like my heart i was like oh wow but i have it still like i legitimately drew fright night in second grade is like my favorite movie Mm -hmm. um so i clearly although i had cosby (laughs) show on there too so i don't know
1: that could definitely take a tragic turn either way there but like you said you're first and foremost you're a fan of everything and i think that speaks to your work because you can again it's solid but you can tell that you're a fan and that's why i think i i'm drawn to a lot of the stuff that you do because i find that it's genuine and that's the one thing when it comes to like podcasts to write yeah. you know it, there needs to be it needs to be genuine it needs to be as you know real joy in what you do and that's the one thing and it does come off in your work so that being said in terms of kind of going from carpenter special effects and that how did the book come about monster squad
0: so it was just sort of a thing where i was like hey i you know and it, it literally was this simple yet this complicated because <laughs> i was like i should write a book um but the the origin of it was is that uh a few years ago we were doing our class of 86 series on daily dead and one of the movies i did was short circuit not because it's a horror movie or anything um but i just wanted i always was as a kid you know as most kids in the 80s were super obsessed with johnny five uh coolest robot ever yes no disassemble Um, (laughs) don't disassemble johnny five (laughs) need more inputs um (laughs) So, you know, so I interviewed Eric Allard, who was the guy who designed it and everything like that, and... It was really crazy because, like, as I was talking to him, he was talking about like, the fact that, like, he was a mi- he was actually in the military and had been doing, like, all this, like, design work, like, on the military side of things and decided to go into robotics and movies. And I was like, wow, that's such a fascinating, like, jump to go from, like, yeah. military to movies. Like, I actually don't even know which one's, like, a harder harder <laughs> haul for people, you know, because, you know, working on movies can be really brutal. Um, and then I realized, like, as I was sitting there, like, listening to him and stuff, I'm like, man, you know. I bet a lot of special effects people, like people come to them and they're like, oh, you know, Rick Baker, how did you do, you know, do the werewolf in American, you know, werewolf in London? And for the 150th time, it was like, okay, this is what we did. But I don't feel like a lot of folks were taking the time to talk to people about like their lives and their experiences because, you know, you guys, you know, know this, like if you're doing anything that's creatively, you know, influenced, whenever you're doing something like you always leave a little piece of yourself in it and you always take a little piece of it with you. Um, and I do believe that, and especially with special effects artists, because I, you know, as I talk to these people, like you realize, you know, sometimes, you know, people that they knew and loved would influence characters they were creating or like favorite monsters that they had, you know, would come through in like monsters they got to create, you know, in these movies. And so I wanted to dig deeper than the how to, and I was more interested in the why, mm. um, because, in, in the how in terms of how well you know how does a kid like Steve Wang who doesn't even grow up in the united states make it 6000 miles over here and start working in in hollywood you know and i i for me because i know it's been an interesting process for me to even do this career, like I could only imagine the cool things or the interesting things that, you know, a lot of these folks would have to endure in order to be able to make it in this industry. Because, you know, these days, like, we have face-off. We have, Mm -hmm. you know it's a different environment where, you know, special effects artists become known for different reasons where it was way more organic back then. Um, It was way more about the work than it was about your persona. Um, Although some guys were about the persona too, and they'll tell you that, (laughs) Um, you know, so for me, I really wanted to find, you know, if nothing else, if, if somebody reads this book and they're not into movie monsters and they're not into special effects, they're not into any of that, but they want to read something about, getting inspired about following their dreams that was sort of the crux for me like because all of these these 20 people in this book they all took a chance and that's what life is like you have to take a chance if there's something out there that you really want like you have to be willing to take that leap like Michelle Burke, uh, who's one of the interviews I did, like she grew up in Ireland and then basically on a visa, you know, because she had to leave home because her mom was like, you're 19 now, get out of my house, <laughs> you know, and so basically she was deciding between Canada and I think the other place was New Australia wow. to go and live and work. And she picked Canada, and because of that, like, she ended up falling in with a bunch of makeup artists and, and beauticians and learning about, like, sort of the scope up there. And then because Canadian horror was booming, you know, in the 80s, like, she was able to really start, you know, getting in real work. So, for me, like, it was those things. Like, yeah, do, you know, it's, it's cool to hear about certain things like, you know – in terms of the t- technical stuff, like, oh, how, would, how do they do right. the Borg Queen and First Contact and stuff like that? But for me also, you know, hearing what maybe like Todd Masters took away from that or what inspired him. Like, I think it was actually the Friday the 13th Kevin Bacon gag that was the way that they were able to create the Borg Queen's heads, you know, floating and, you know, huh. free of anything else. So it's for me, it was like it, it just it just seemed like a logical thing to do because nobody had done it. And it wasn't a huge stretch for me because I knew if I was going to do a book, I didn't want it to really be about me. I wanted it to be about other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like these were the stories that needed to be told.
1: So who did you reach out to first? Who was the first one to actually make you realize, I, this is this can happen, this is going to happen?
0: The first ones actually uh, were Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. Um, And I had gotten to know them a little bit over the years through um, a few years ago. Um, I, well, about, se- about six or seven years ago, one year I did like a, a tribute to Stan Winston um, on, D- on Dread Central. And then they reached out to me a few years later when I was over at Daily Dead and they were like, oh, you know, would you want to do something again? So because of that, I got to know those guys a bunch because they came up under Stan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were the first two I kind of went to because I was like, well, these guys know me. They trust me. <laughs> they if if anybody's gonna say yes they are and if they say no well then maybe this isn't the right thing to do and of course both of them because they're absolute saints they were like (laughs) yes of course um and they've been so gracious over the years i have to say like i bug them all the time i'm like so guys um can we talk about this because i'm really fascinated (laughs) about that like all the the alien three stuff now so it's like they've been super super gracious to me over the years um and then I think the one after that was Tony Gardner because I had just um, a few months prior they he had worked on Scouts Guide's uh, Scouts Guide to the uh, Zombie Apocalypse,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is a really fun movie yeah, that um, I feel like it's super overlooked.
2: Absolutely,
0: uh, right. Absolutely. Like it had zombie kitties and crazy Cloris Leachman, and, f- and it was like funny those kids are and, good.
2: Yeah, it was funny and gory and everything you want in a movie called "The Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse." You know,
0: right? And really raunchy, which kind of I was
2: yeah, like, it was, "All right, we're yeah, gonna earn that hard." Yeah, was. <laughs> I dug it. I dug it immensely.
0: Yeah, um, so I had gotten to know Tony because for one of the days, they actually had a a couple of, like, journalists go to his shop, and they actually made us up as zombies to then interview him on camera, which was a crazy process. Um, So, but he was super nice, and he actually made all of us a zombie kitty, which I still have, (laughs) Um, and I just, like, knew from, like, talking to him, like, oh, he's a really nice guy, so he was the next person I reached out to, and he was like, yes, of course, and then from there it just was kind of a lot of like trial and error like there was a few people i was supposed to get that kind of flaked on me there was one you know and i'm not naming names on any of these of course because i'm not going to be a jerk uh but there was one person who was like yes yes i want to do it but i will only be in book one and i was like okay and then for four months played email tag with them and then i was like okay i have to really actually start writing this thing now so i you know this is it like we have i have two weeks until i have to really like start focusing never heard anything and then i reached out back a few months later and he's like oh i'd love to do it oh wait this is for book 2 never mind and i was like really <laughs> uh, uh. i was like okay um and then also sadly one of the people that i had reached out to um in this process with John Vulich who passed away so for me that breaks my heart because i know that's a piece of history gone yeah. Um, you know, because all these people, their experiences, it's, it's history, it's cinematic history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as we sort of move towards this digital age, like I want the history to be somewhere, because we're not always like, we're not always all going to be here, you yeah. know. Um, so it was just, uh, you know, it was a lot of like, oh, you know, Big victories, a few, a few defeats. You know, a few people that, like, on the first book, they were like, "Yes, yes," and then I didn't hear from them. But now that I'm almost wrapped with book two, they're like, "Oh, yes, let's do this." So, it's, you know, honestly, the easiest part of it was actually writing it. It's been sort of coordinating everything else that was like the hardest part of it.
2: You're basically hurting cats.
0: It really is. Like, it just endless kittens. Like, it's a buffet of
2: kittens. <laughs> Zombie kittens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So kind of putting everything together, then, was there any particular surprises or stories that came? Because like you said, you're really you're chronicling these stories that are never heard. And they don't have that that outlet. So you are giving these voices to a lot. And again, these are the people that are crafting and creating unsung horror heroes. Very much so. So was there anything in particular that was like a surprise or anything where you're like, oh, my God, that's mind blowing?
0: You know, I mean, there was a lot of really amazing stories where I was like, whoa, really? Um, I remember Rick Lazzarini, um, who he's worked on, like, Spaceballs and stuff like that. Um, he was telling me stories, and there's an initial mention of it, but certain stories where he was like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't put that in a book. But he actually <laughs> used to do makeup and costumes for Kiss back in the day.
2: Oh. Like, when he was
0: still a teenager.
2: Holy shit. Wow.
0: Yeah, like that's, he would just show up at clubs with his friend and be like, Hey, man, we'll do some costumes and stuff. And one of the bands ended up being Kiss, which I thought was crazy.
1: That's insane. So, that is. And that see, to me, that is the, the little minute little things like that that really enhance
3: mm-hmm.
1: the book, that enhance the stories, that enhance these people. Because, like you said, every little bit that they've experienced comes out in their art. Yeah. And so for yeah. them to get a chance to actually talk, I'm sure, how many of them were actually really excited to do this? Just like, Holy shit, you're you want to talk you know let's let's were, were any of them surprised by that by any chance
0: they were it was everybody was pretty gung-ho although i will say um and i and i i think i can say this with like and it's going to be okay like it's not going to ruffle any feathers because he's he's pretty brash and real you know he's he doesn't pull any punches um so when i went to steve johnson um which if you know steve johnson he's got a big personality and he'll be the first to tell you that he was the crazy party kid in effects in the 80s and you know and he's made you know no qualms about you know, the things that he's done in the past and sort of making amends for them. Um, you know, I think, like, the end of his chapter is, like, him saying, like, you know, basically, if I hadn't been, like, a, cork, a coke-snorting brat, you know, maybe I'd be, you know, super rich now. You know, he's very candid about this mm-hmm. stuff. So, when I was going to do the interview with him, originally, he was like, oh, I've you know, I do all these interviews, like, and I just did a book. Like, do we really have to do this? And I was like, you know, and he was super cool. Like, a few months earlier, I had done... um A whole issue of our deadly magazine through daily dead on fright night and he was one of the people that I talked to and um so he was like oh another interview I'm just so tired of talking about myself and I was like okay you know I was like all right like let's I was like give me give me 20 minutes and if you just are thinking this is the worst you know then we'll just scrap it you know I'm not you know you've been super good to me in the past I'm not gonna you know our feelings won't be hurt (laughs) you know there's certain personalities so the day that we get on skype you know he's like hey and if i'm sort of a person where i'm on skype like i don't want to be on video because like I'm in my pajamas. Like, that's how I live. Like any day that I have to put on real clothes is a bad day. Um, you know, you. if I can stay in PJs, I'm good. So it's like Saturday morning. I haven't showered. I'm in my pajamas. And he's like, well, why aren't we on video? Oh, and I was like, well, Steve, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm I told him, like, I'm not camera ready. <laughs> you now." And he's like, okay. He's like, so how are we going to do this? So I don't hate my life. He's like, cause I quit smoking two days ago and I'm, just not happy about anything, and I was like, "Oh dear God!" Um, and I was terrified because I, you know, I really respect Stephen again. You know, he's, you know, I've seen him a bunch of times since, and you know, we we joke about it and everything. But I was like, I was actually terrified because I've never had an interview where they're like, "Okay, how are we going to talk where you don't make me hate this?" And I was like, "Oh shit!" So, like, I I knew I had to switch up the game because I have, you know, for me, interviewing is kind of like a like a math problem Mm -hmm. like if i'm doing like a four minute interview like i know the questions i need to ask in order to get the answers i know i want to make the video that i feel like i should be out there so i know how to do these things like i don't prep questions ahead of time or anything like that when i do interviews because also i'm super into like just having that organic conversation because you get better stuff anyway
3: yeah
0: so i was like oh my god like what am i gonna do so i basically just had to ask like i just had to completely divert my normal sort of question set of questions and just kind of come at him from the side and you know i would say like 110 minutes later he was like wow he's like you know that was really fun and he was and i was like oh. so that <laughs> was my biggest like okay i can do this like if i can do that i can do anything um you know, and I think it you know came out really great. Again, it was like a, it's a very candid chapter. Uh, if you have kids who want to read about like special effects artists, maybe skip the Steve Johnson chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at least like you know in high school or something. Um, but yeah, so, I mean everybody was super great about you know sharing stuff, and they you know so many people shared materials, which was great. You know, and for me, like I just with every interview i was like holy crap did that really just happen because i still don't like i honestly like i have a box of books in my house like somebody jb from f this movie just tweeted today that he's standing in dark delicacies in front of my book and i honest to god i'm still like oh i wrote a book like it doesn't like none of my life feels real over the last two years um i think maybe when the second one's out and then it's done done i'll be like Oh, I really did it, but for now I just I feel like the luckiest bastard ever.
2: Well, we're just glad that you didn't come on this show and say, "Okay, how are we gonna do this so I don't hate this?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, we got that's nothing. What I, that's
0: what when <laughs> I'm like in total diva mode, and I'm oh like, yes.
2: Ugh.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, let's just talk about the book already. Fucking fine,
1: God. <laughs> so is is actually now having that at Dark Delices Is that kind of that moment of holy shit? I made it.
0: I'm I'm literally every time I think about it, I just do my best to not like cry like a total wuss because I don't like again. I still don't believe it. Like I I still remember like the first signing I ever went to there. Um, was in 2009, like, shortly after I moved out here, um, and I just remember standing in there, because it's, like, one of the the horror meccas of, of L.A., you know, dark delicacies, and, you know, Halloween Town, and, like, all these other, you know, ca- Dapper Cadaver, and you're like, okay, like, whoa, I'm standing in dark delicacies. Like, I never, like, first of all, I never in a million years thought I would ever write a book, to begin with, and let alone, now I'm going to be at a book signing, like, holy shit, that to me, like, I still am like oh yeah that's a thing I have to prepare for like cuz it just doesn't it doesn't feel real because I never imagined like in a, in a billion years that anything that I'd done would have led to this and it's I'm like and I'm not you know acting like I cured cancer or anything like that <laughs> but the fact that like I actually was like I'm going to do this and I actually did it and followed through the whole way and didn't let anything like stop me like that for me is like the huge victory Um, Because it's so easy for life to kind of just throw you some curveballs and for you to give up. And I just knew that I had to push through. And I mean, there was like, there was probably a good two weeks where I didn't even like barely looked at my laptop, even with like normal work, um, because I was so nervous about this the doing this that I just was convinced I couldn't so I was like well you know fucking I'm just not even gonna open my computer you know and then it can't get me that way or something like that and it was just it was a really scary thing and then I did the first chapter and I was like oh god I can do this and I, I will tell you it sounds really stupid but my biggest like sort of cheerleader through all of it was like watching Salem's Lot over and over Um, because one, it's a really good long movie to write to and I don't have to get up and change a disc or anything Um, (laughs) but two, it was just watching the story about a writer And then also, which involves this really cool monster kid who loves, you know, creatures and building stuff. And to me, it was almost sort of like the perfect inspiration behind it. Um, If if only Salem's Lot had been a catchier title that tied into special effects, perhaps. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so
2: it was Salem's
1: Latex.
0: (laughs) Ooh. I'm going to steal
2: that.
1: (laughs) Well, the fact that you, you started, you know, you took that chance by going out to LA, California, and now here you are, how many years later, promoting a book based on your yes. love, the the very reason you went out for there for that. So, I mean, you talk about the inspiration behind the people you interviewed, but you yourself, I don't think there's any better person to basically be that conduit for these artists as you yourself. So, I mean, and I know you, you don't like talking about it, but this is something that's, this is a big deal. And so yeah. first of all, congratulations on all of that. That's
2: much respect to the hustle.
1: Yes. Much Respect Thank you. to the hustle. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and here's the thing guys, I know Christmas just passed this and that, but you know what? You guys got gift cards, you got money. So if you need to, you can spend that gift card over at like Amazon, this yeah. or that, um, where can people buy the book? That's the most important thing.
0: Um, it is, uh, because there's a soft cover and a hard cover, which the hard cover keeps selling out, which is crazy to That's me awesome. over on Amazon. Um, so, you know, it's it's over on Amazon. It's also over on the publisher's website, too, which is Um, There's a few other, like, book retailers online that have it. I don't know the official ones, but I think your best bet is either Amazon or through Bear Manor.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Nice. So we've been talking about an hour now just about the the craft of the special effect, the artists behind the special effects, we as fans of the special effects, mm-hmm. you know, the people basically that crafted our childhood. So I wanted to make sure before we left is I wanted everyone here to kind of put together three... Of your favorite, and it doesn't have to be all time, because that can change by the hour, right. obviously, but like three of your favorite gags that you've seen in the movies, you know, that had to do with special effects. Anything that much blew your mind, made you barf, you know, anything along those lines. So, being our guest, Heather, uh, why don't you start us off with your first little pick on your favorite gags?
0: Okay, well, I, I... I omitted the obvious with going with american werewolf or the thing because you know those are like the the shows um so my first one would actually be the uh freddy chest of souls from dream master
1: yes Yes. nice that is and that's what's really funny now is we've talked a lot now just in terms of fandom and now how fandom is turning inwards so we're getting these amazingly in-depth and detailed documentaries now and obviously you know Never Sleep Again I've got it's embarrassing to admit I've probably watched it at least the entirety of it ten times but going into part four and all the gags on there yeah that's one of my all-time especially the fact that they highlight
2: (laughs) and Linnea Quigley is one of the naked Pretty boobs. It's, so. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So,
1: was that? Was it? What was your first entry into Nightmare on Elm Street, Heather? Do you remember?
0: Oh, it was the first one. I remember um, my best friend's parents rented it, and they were like, "Okay, we're going to watch it first and see if it's okay." And the initial the initial reaction was a no go. But I remember that <laughs> they
3: were
0: they were sitting in her their living room, and the way her her couch was kind of the middle of the living room, and we crawled out from her bedroom from the hallway and crawled behind the couch. And it was the scene in the bedroom when Tina gets sliced oh, open, and then ah, ends up doing the rotating room.
3: Uh, mm-hmm.
0: And my my best friend Jenna gasped, and that was like the giveaway. And she was like, <gasps> and then of course every parent in the room looks at us, and we're like, oh my god, we're going away. Okay, okay. Um, but then like a few months later, I was at my babysitter's, and I talked to her, or I basically got her to talk my mom into letting me watch it. Um, so I, I was the original one. Um, and then I was just super obsessed from there. I mean, Freddie was everything I had, like, Freddie was like, like the poster I had on my walls. Like I had a Freddy Krueger and a Hulk Hogan. Those were my two big, my two big regular posters that didn't come out of Tiger Beat or Bop.
2: <laughs> it's too bad they didn't combine like, never sleep again, brother, you know, just like, <laughs> The prayers, the trainings, the Vicodin, you know, or like the
1: No-Dos. <laughs> hypno yeah. yeah, the hypnosis There we go. No, that's a great pick. Uh, part four is uh, the chest expansion. So, Genius, what is one of yours on your list? Let's stick with Freddy.
2: I'm going to say the big giant Freddy worm from part three. That thing was a beast, and it's, it was amazing how they made something that big so, like, monstrous. Turn around and snarl, you know? That's, it was the snarl part that got me. So and, just the it was amazing, and I
1: can't remember if this is correct or not. I think I might be putting the snarl on Poltergeist Two because if I remember right, one either in Poltergeist Two, this sn- when the little the tequila monster comes out, mm-hmm. one of those he snarls has like a, he has like a <laughs> one of those snarls I think was by accident. I can't remember if it was part three, a nightmare on Elm Street, or part two, of Poltergeist. Heather, do, can you confirm or deny any of those?
0: I don't know if i can't remember if there was any intentional like i'm trying to remember who worked on poltergeist i feel like i i've talked to somebody who worked on poltergeist too but i think that's book two um i don't think we did a ton of poltergeist in this book um i want to say i'm gonna i'd be willing to bet the poltergeist snarl was unintentional because a freddie because he's so massive canon- Mm. Yeah and he's he's all about that 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 look that he yeah. gives his his people like the people he's about to to decimate like I feel like that would have been like super planned um but I'm I'd be willing to bet maybe the Poltergeist 2 thing is is probably the right choice
1: no the Craig t nelson the t stands for tequila no that whole that whole thing freaked me out um so my first one here is i'm going to stay in the year of 1987 uh with hellraiser but it's not specifically into the cenobites but it's frank's rebirth oh yeah that come to daddy Uh Oh, so good. It freaked me out so much because it was one of those first times I was like, How is that not real? Like, how is that not some undead being being brought up from these floorboards, mm-hmm. just ultra gooey, gory? But ultimately, I was like, How is that happening? And it blew my mind. But I don't know, did Bob Keene, was he the one that worked on that particular one? Heather, do you know?
0: He was, yes, actually, okay. and we we talked about that because there was actually two versions of that scene. Um, there was sort of the first version, and they just realized it didn't it didn't go as far as it could have, and so they I think they did the reshoots here in, in Los Angeles, and that's when they sort of did the the whole sequence was under the floorboards and everything like that. Um, but I think they, because I think they got some extra money to be able to go back and reshoot that, um, which is inc- which is like kind of crazy that like beyond everything else. they're like you know what we have not gone far enough. Right. <laughs> we need more. <laughs> like as if like bloody drippy Frank the whole time isn't enough. They're like yes we need more, um, which is amazing. And yeah, and Bob Keen actually worked with Clive Barker on a on a few projects. He did, I know he did Nightbreed. I want to say, I think he also might have done Lord of Illusions also, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, um, Bob Keen, it was it was a really fun interview, too, because he actually, being originally from the UK, he actually worked on, I believe, Empire and Return of the Jedi. Um, and then he also did some stuff with uh, Neverending Story and, um, oh goodness, with Jim Henson. And I'm totally blanking.
2: Labyrinth?
1: Dark Crystal? Dark Crystal?
0: I think it
1: was, I think it was Dark Crystal. Oh, oh, uh, in that case, I need to have a word with him as well. Mm. When that gelfling gets its life essence sucked out of it through the power of the Dark Crystal. Again, I know this was a movie made for kids, but holy shit. That put me in a moment of PTSD that I'm still recovering from from this day. Mm. For, forget those sketches. <laughs> so your second pick there, Heather, if you don't mind.
0: So I'm going to go with a little more of a general one um, because for me it made such a huge impact on me as a kid. Um, but I would have to almost go overall with Gremlins because I just nice. had never seen so many creatures like that done practically. Like, and yeah. you know, you know, if that movie was done today, ninety-five oh. percent of that would all be digital. <laughs> um, so the the scope of that and seeing what they were able to do and like all the different types of like techniques that they used in terms of like giant gizmos and like putting five hundred people under an you know an elevated stage floor (laughs) like it's insane what they had to do to pull that movie off and it's still incredible like I Mm -hmm. get such a goofy smile on my face like the first time you see all of them running down the street and then when they get to the movie theater like holy crap I as a kid you could not have asked for like a more perfect Thing because it was just like i couldn't believe what i was seeing deagle,
1: deagle, deagle. Um, we, we've talked about it before deagle's death is uh just <laughs> hilarious um
2: <laughs> side note um this christmas i spent it with shorty my seven year old niece and she watched gremlins for the first time with me what'd you think she loved it she, she- loved it
0: I was gonna say, did she check the washing machine afterwards? Because I did when I got home that Because <laughs> like at the end of the movie when they're like, you know, your
3: washing
0: machine. So I went home and like checked my washing machine.
2: Turn <laughs> on all the lights, lock all the doors.
1: Cause you never might you never know you might have a gremlin.
2: Ding 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 Thankfully
1: I had a Dick Miller-esque uncle, so I was always <laughs> paranoid about in? those, yeah. <laughs>
2: Goddamn gremlins,
1: W W I I and sadly enough, I I once wrecked my mother's Gremlin. I don't know if you guys remember the Gremlin car. There was this, and it was this. You, 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 oh yeah. So I I don't know if I put it out of its misery, but I've had this aversion to Gremlins for the longest time. But I saw that in the theater with my mom and my grandmother. And during that Gremlins kitchen siege scene, I think it was either the blender death or the microwave death. My grandmother looked at me like, what are we watching? You know,
2: I thought this was a PG movie. Well, Shorty really didn't want to watch Gremlins at first until I showed her the kitchen scene. (laughs) I showed her. I'm like, look, see this? She goes, oh, that thing is so cute. What's it called? I'm like, it's a mogwai. Well, what does it happen? It turns into a monster. Really? Yeah, watch. And then I fast forward it to this kitchen scene. She's like...
1: Let's watch the whole movie, and I'm like, "You got it."
2: So it was, it was so good. <laughs> well, so there's good. such craft
1: with those creatures, like you said, Heather. Just in terms of they would make it, to- they would totally be digital now.
2: Yeah, or or I'm glad they didn't make monkeys in suits like they were originally oh. going to do.
0: Oh my gosh, right? That could
2: have, that could have been. De- <laughs>
0: I was going to say, it just reminds me of, like, in Scrooge, when we're like, we'll just, you know, glue some antlers to the mice. Well, and then then
1: just like, get well, staplers. Right.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I think the only thing missing from Gremlins were the solid gold dancers, as it were. <laughs> they're in part two. That's right. <laughs> so, no, really good pull
2: there. Uh, second pick there, Genius. Okay. Um, I know you said you're not going to do the thing or all that because they're the big ones, but I cannot do of my favorite special effects type thing without talking about the thing, specifically the scene where he's going to defibrillator and then that whole shenanigans that go on the whole squiddly diddly the the everything that was just a, such a good scary scene and it still gets me to this day
1: and that's Oh the, it's awesome. Yeah those effects hold up <clears throat> wonderfully and I think it's also just if you de- this is the thing I always ask people with the thing if you were to take away Rob Botine's work from the thing Would the movie still be held as in such awe as it is? Do you think it would?
0: I think it would. But, you know, I think the best thing about The Thing is that at the time, like, nobody saw that movie yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's just called The Thing. So how do you put, (laughs) how do you create The Thing? And so what you do is create a lot of things. And The Thing is everything. And so I, I, I feel like it, It probably would work, but man, I'll tell you what, like some of the, you mentioned like the defibrillator scene with poor Richard Dysart and his (laughs) amazing nose ring, which I just love the fact that it wasn't until I got HD where I realized that thing was actually there, um, or, like, you know, obviously the scene with the dogs and the pen, which was, like, my ultimate nightmare. Um, or, you know, or even just, like, the scene, like, um, I'm totally blanking on which character, the character's name. But, like, when he's out there in the snow and he's got, like, the one arm and he just screeches. Oh,
2: that one, yeah.
0: Like, even if he had an arm and he still screeched <laughs> like that, that would still scare the shit out of yeah. anybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think there's, and it's really funny you mentioned the nose ring. Uh, if you go back and watch Escape from New York, uh, Lee Van Cleef is rocking the best earring and mm-hmm. bracelet combination. So I don't know if with it, with Carpenter and accessories, if that's something that he's doing on the side. But goddamn, and I love the fact that you were able to focus on that. That's accessories awesome.
2: make the man.
1: He's,
0: yeah, <laughs> Carpenter's a stylish dude. He gets it.
1: He does get it. <laughs> no, I agree. That's just one of those. Well,
2: and I think the thing kind of like is like cake. Okay. You can enjoy a nice slice of cake without the frosting, and it's still a good piece of cake. But the special effects is the frosting. It's the and buttercream I mean, frosting. Yes. Well, not for you, Gene. me. unfortunately the, lactose intolerant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I should say. Vegan
1: butter cheese yes, frosting. Vegan butter
2: cheese frosting. Buttercream.
1: <laughs> now that's um, so I'm gonna kinda piggyback and go with what I would consider low-hanging fruit on this one, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say American Werewolf in London, but it's not going to be on the werewolf transformation sequence. For me, the thing that really stuck out to me the first time I saw it was kind of the, the humanizing of Jack as he becomes more de- de- deteriorated. And there's that scene when they're in the hospital and Griffin Dunn, he's got that little flap of skin that's hanging down. And I couldn't, I still to this day, I can't take my eyes off of it when I watch it. But the, just as grotesque as he looks, and I think this speaks to Griffin Dunn's performance, but he gives such a human performance. All the while, he is just falling Covered apart. In d- and that, viscera. the yes, viscera with yeah. that one is what just ugh, that <laughs> it freaked. That and the Nazi werewolves number one just scared the shit out of me growing up. But yeah, Jack's deterioration just, and it's still to this day, it sticks with me. It's one yeah. of those that I just can't divorce from my mind. Mm-mm.
0: And the thing that it's like for for a werewolf movie to spend that much time like on a non-quote-unquote werewolf effect. And the fact that there was a real thought to the progression of it, like it wasn't just he's going to look the same and, you know, all gnarly and mangled up throughout the whole movie. Like, there was a real story to his makeup, like is just a huge testament to Rick Baker, the the thought that he would put into the process of doing these things. Because I'm sure Landis was probably like, oh, you know... He probably had ideas, but I'm willing. If I'm willing to put my money on the table, like I'm willing to bet, a lot of that progression idea came from Rick Baker.
1: Yeah, yeah. it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It totally makes sense. So, what is your final pick of the podcast there, Heather?
0: Oh dear God, I literally just had it in my head and I started talking American Werewolf. What was I? Oh shoot, 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 shoot. We- okay. Um. Yes. So this was this for me is sort of a personal one. Not that it's like one of the greatest ever created, you know, in the history of effects. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was such. It was an effect that hit me as one as like holy shit, that's cool, but also really hit me emotionally and it's uh the Brundle Pod uh transformation uh, at the end of the fly.
1: Oh Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Because all
0: the stuff with Brundlefly itself is incredible and this you know, and it's kinda of funny that I went with Chris Whalis twice, um, unintentionally. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> It's like so you're watching all this brundlefly stuff, which is incredible, and it's like amazing what they were able to do with that. But for me, that last look and that 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 last you know form of brundlefly as he's fused together with this technology, and this just tragedy behind all of this, and the sadness to these eyes that you know it's a puppet, and yet I'm crying, and I don't know why, and like, and for me, I. Like, cause I saw the fly at the drive-in as a kid and I probably had that image in my, like seared in my brain where I thought about it daily for like, I would say at least six to eight months where I just was like, Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) Like, and it really, and that's, that's, that's when you know you've created something amazing Mm -hmm. because we're all well aware it's not real and yet in your in your core, it feels real, yeah. and that's something like King Kong and the tragedy of King Kong and and stuff like that. So, like for me, like Brundlepod was just like the ultimate tragedy in terms of like modern you know creatures.
1: Did you ever find yourself kind of siding uh, and caring more for the monsters in the movies when you were growing up than like maybe just some of the human protagonist?
0: You know, I think I think I did um, because I always just kind of felt like a weird kid anyway. <laughs> but it's funny, like in in the sort of in the case of like the fly like i sort of because i watched that movie a lot um and i've realized as i've gotten older i've realized that like stathis is kind of the hero of the fly (laughs) he's he's a dick he's he's totally a dick and he maybe goes like some some ulterior motives that aren't great but he's never not wrong in that movie
1: no he really isn't
0: he really isn't and he's like you know what are you doing and ultimately he puts himself on the line for this chick who's kind of been a dick back to him like yeah. so it's like for me like I, as i've gotten older now i'm like oh that Stathis is he kind of knew what was going on right you know so it's like I, I, I less see the 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 right side of you know the seth and veronica relationship and i see Stathis where i'm like oh but he was right the whole time so you know but again but then you see like movies like um i don't know if you if you guys have had a chance to see the Shape of Water, yet. Yes. But like, that is just like the most gorgeous love letter to movie monsters ever. And I just, it makes me feel like for like that, like, hour and 40 minutes, like that we're all literally wandering around in Guillermo del Toro's heart. And it's the best place ever.
1: <laughs> it really is. And that was actually, that was, God was going to transition and ask you if you've seen The Shape of Water. Yeah, it's transcendent. It's, as I was telling Genius, he hasn't seen it yet, but I was like, you know, with Del Toro, the monsters are good the people are bad and the pathos is real. Well, I you know, know I'm gonna love it. It's Del Toro. Yeah. I mean it's always weird to me, like you're talking
2: about how when you saw um when you sympathize, not with necessarily the villain, but like one of the bad guys as opposed to the thing. I was watching Ghostbusters the other day and I noticed that Walter Peck was kind of right. You know he's,
0: he's not wholly unwrong in he, that movie.
2: He's not wholly unwrong because I mean the Ghostbusters did kind of set up this weird trans dimensional Gateway Portal, right, in the, right? Yeah, right in the middle of Central Park without worrying about any of the environmental ramifications. There's got to be some, like, leakage and runoff of nuclear power thing are right in the middle of an old fire station.
0: Yeah, there should be at least some building codes involved.
2: Right. Okay, so for my next pick of one of my favorite ones, um, I love the hatchet series i think it's some of the most creative unique kills out there in modern uh, horror cinema but my favorite one and i think it was in the original one and i believe it's john carl buchler who did it when um the lady when victor crowley basically turns that woman into a pez dispenser <laughs> and then her tongue is on the thing i i I audibly cheered at that scene and I was like, yes, this is awesome. So I, I was it John Carl Buechler.
1: And Buechler, I think, did all the yeah. work on the original one.
2: Yeah. No, it was so good.
1: Actually, my favorite thing of that movie is the fr- the initial entrance of Victor Crowley when he comes out of that cabin and he just does this full body. <laughs>
3: rah, <laughs> yeah. And it's
1: I don't know what it was, but it made me laugh initially. <laughs> and then the brutality <laughs> of the next two kills, like yeah. you said, and that one, it was all practical. But they, and it, it was
2: a three sixty thing, which
1: made me really like. They did a digital cut in it.
2: Yeah, but it's. Tw- But you can't but you can't even tell. I mean it just it just looks like a one three sixty sweeping head rip and it was just the most violently beautiful thing, you know?
1: Well it's funny. Um really quickly, Heather, we um I have a decent sized backyard and I've got kind of a little theater area that I put out there and uh every year I do a big horror marathon at my house, and we do two indoors and then two outdoors. And a couple of years ago, <laughs> uh, I screened Hatchet for the first film, Outdoors, and I've got a friend of ours that... And you know, I never, I don't see Hatchet as a really scary movie. You know, it's more funny. But he was caught up in it. He was getting freaked out with everything. And unfortunately, genius here, just
3: <laughs> devious. If you want
1: to, like, ultimately, he he he's just scared the shit out of this poor guy. Like, timed <laughs> the jump and the scare perfectly. With it's everything. all about timing in horror. It's all about timing. No, that's a fantastic pick there. Um, So my last one, and this is one that in particular isn't gross. It doesn't rely on blood or viscera or anything like that, but it made me truly go, how did they do that? And we're going back to, I believe a Steve Johnson did this one, but I am talking about Night of the Demons. And again, I'm not talking about a specific gory... Yes! Yeah. (laughs) but if if you if you utilize lipstick
0: maybe it's maybelline it's maybe maybe it is
1: maybelline that that
2: okay so i met linnea quigley uh, at a convention and i was telling her that um <laughs> that was one of the very first pair of like horror movie boobs that i saw but then to see her do that with the lipstick really fucked with my mind for quite a while and she's like are you better? And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I am. (laughs) You should have been
0: like, you're like, I'm not sure. Maybe if we do the scene now, oh, God. I'll let you know.
2: I actually happen to have some lipstick right here. You know?
1: That's why genius can't go back to that particular <laughs> convention center. No more bright,
2: bright, bright mirror for me. No, there is something
1: about that. It's It startled me because it is something. It's it's tantalizing. It's titillating, pun intended. And then when that happens. Like, what the fuck?
2: How did that happen? <laughs> and that's just it. How
1: did they do that? That was the thing that made me go, how did that happen? Well,
2: for the longest time, I've always seen women put stuff in their bra, like, <laughs> change your phone whatever and so when i saw that and now and mind you I, i'm little right when i was like that that that, that that's 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 how it works right. you know that <laughs> I, 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 wow okay <laughs>
0: I so, mean, I keep my loose change in there, but I don't put anything bigger than a quarter.
2: you got to think you
1: practical. Gotta,
2: you got to be realistic. Yeah, right?
1: Right? <laughs> Functionality over fashion, if you will. Um, t- this has been a blast. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk, number one, talk special effects and horror, but also talking your book. I know this is a little bit difficult for you, but I think you came out like a champ on this one. Uh, before we wrap things up again, tell people where can they find you on the Internet and where can they find the book?
0: Excellent. Um, yes, so I'm over. Uh, if you're looking to read some uh, <laughs> articles, I'm over at dailydead.com. If you want to hear me ramble about weird crap, I'm on Twitter over at the Horror Chick. Um, and for anything related to the book, you can also follow over on Twitter at Monster FX. Um, and the book is currently available on Amazon and over on BearMannerMedia.com.
1: Excellent, excellent. And so, sincerely, Invitation is open anytime you want to come on, plug, promote, shenanigans, it doesn't matter. You have an open invite from here on out.
2: Absolutely because anybody that likes Terror in the aisles and Waxworks <laughs> is A-OK in my book.
0: I think we should just come back and like find a random group of children and just show them Sleepaway Camp and record their responses.
2: As long as we can find one named Judy, they're like you see what happens when you're an asshole, Judy? You see, don't yeah. wear a shirt with your name on it,
1: Judy. <laughs> I'm afraid we would discourage side ponytails from here on out and that would just be a crime against humanity.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: Uh, well, I was just thinking Thinking to myself the other day, that wouldn't do it all. <laughs> so until <laughs> next time, guys, this is Greg D. I'm Genius McGee. And we will see you in your dreams.